right, good to be back, amen? Good to see each and every one of you. Hillsboro is an hour east of Cincinnati. How many knows where Cincinnati is? Go one hour east and you'll find the big city of Hillsboro. Population about 10,000, amen? But anyways, we, uh, it's good to be here back at Bethel. I uh, met Brother Prophet, I believe it was in 93, in Columbus up there, Ohio, and uh, the camp meeting, as he mentioned there, and I uh, appreciate his friendship through the years. You know, a lot of things going on in the last few months with this coronavirus, and we got, uh, in our church, we got folks that are uh, scared to death of it, and we got folks that aren't scared at all. So as as a pastor, you have to kind of try to be a mediator. And uh, so uh, we recognize that there is a virus, but uh, I'm not going to live in a cave the rest of my life. And I'm going to use my head. I'm not going to go up and hug and kiss everybody. Amen. But uh, I'm not going to live in a cave. We got a lady in our church, Donnie, bless her heart. She's just down down home type woman now she's 86 years old and what you see is what you get with Dottie amen after about two or three months of this back I don't know May or June there uh what did it start in March I guess probably May or June I told the folks we're not going to shake hands after about two or three months of that I go out to Los Angeles every year and preach in January and uh out there it's a Korean church and an English church combined and uh, they have to interpret for me, for the Korean people. But the Korean people out there, they don't shake hands. They do this. When they come up to you, they do this. I'm going to tell you what, after about a week coming out of there, I was doing like this. (laughs) On the airplane coming back, I was doing this, you know. And uh, they just give each other a nod. And... uh, I said, I told the folks, I said, what we're going to do is we're going to do what the Koreans do. I said, we're going to just give each other a nod, a friendly nod and a smile. And after about two or three months of that, Sister Dottie, bless her heart, she come up to me. She said, she goes, here, preacher, shake my hand. She goes, I ain't no Korean. <laughs> but anyways, you got to know Dottie, amen. But anyways, let's turn to Hebrews 13, if you would. Hebrews 13. Let's stand if you if you if you want to stand that's fine if you don't whatever you want to do there Hebrews thirteen <coughs> Hebrews thirteen we're just going to read verse uh, eight Hebrews thirteen and uh, verse number eight Hebrews thirteen and uh, verse number eight. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Father, we pray that you'll bless this message. Lord, I realize that I am absolutely nothing, zero, without you. And I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. I don't have nothing to give these dear folks, but Lord, I pray that you would use me to minister to these folks here today. If there's a lost soul in the building, we pray you'd save them. Pray, Father, you'd strengthen and encourage your people. Lord, help us to live for you in these last days. 
we pray in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> this is a familiar verse of scripture, <clears throat> and uh, I want to preach this morning on the changeless Christ. The changeless Christ. Uh, Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Uh, people change. Fads change. Fashions change. Automobiles have changed through the years. Uh, furniture changes. Uh, the economy. All these things. A lot of different things change through the years. Uh, this country has changed. In the, in the past six months, this country has changed. And uh, uh, I want to preach on the changeless Christ. I'm glad that Jesus Christ doesn't change. Amen. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. I want to say, first of all, number one, that Christ is changeless in his wisdom. In his wisdom. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus Christ is our wisdom. He's our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Colossians 2 verse 3, In whom, talking about Christ, In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You want wisdom? Go to God. James 1.5 If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and he upbraideth not. Yep, he upbraideth not. James 1.5 Jesus Christ was filled with wisdom from his youth. In Luke 2.40 And the child grew, talking about Jesus Christ, and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. Now generally speaking, the older that a person gets, the wiser they become. That's not always true in some cases, but uh, generally speaking, uh, wisdom usually comes with age. Abraham Lincoln said, I don't think much of a man who is not wiser today than he was yesterday. But think of a being who is as wise today as he was a hundred years ago. Or a thousand years ago. You realize, like, you and I, we, people have to go to college to be a surgeon, you know. They have to go to medical school. You know, a brain surgeon, a heart surgeon. They have to go to many years of college to learn all these things. Any kind of a trade or uh, if you're going to be a mechanic, you have to go to some kind of training and learn about cars and all the parts and so forth. I mean, whatever it might be. You realize God already knows all about that? God don't have to go to school for nothing. He don't have to go to seminary. He don't have to go to college. He don't have to go. Think of a being that has all wisdom and knowledge. It blows your mind to even think about it. Job 32.9, great men are not always wise. In Matthew 13.54, it says, And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom? Where did he get this wisdom is what they're asking. Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Proverbs 4.7 Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. 
Proverbs 16, 16, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold? Uh, Matthew 10, 16, Jesus sent his disciples out. He said, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Amen. So Christ is changeless in his wisdom. Secondly, Christ is changeless in his holiness. His holiness. In 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16, the Bible says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. You say, Preacher, you believe in holiness? Amen. That's one of the problems of our country. That's probably the main problem in our country is because of sin. People, uh, We can get into a lot of different things. People have different opinions about it. But I'm going to tell you what people say. What about this virus? What is this? It's just part of the judgment of God on our nation. You read the Bible in the Old Testament. God sent pestilences and all kinds of things, plagues, as judgment upon nations. God would use one, he'd use one unsaved heathen king to bring judgment upon another country. God uses men as pawns. I'm not sure that our president, and, uh, and I appreciate our president, by the way. He's not perfect, but I'll tell you what, I'd much rather have him than the alternative. Amen? And uh, not only in 16, but even coming up in November. But I'm, and I don't want to get into all that, but I just want to tell you this, that uh, I, don't think, I don't know if he realizes or not, but he is a pawn in God's hand. He is a pawn. I believe God is giving this country another chance for the past four years and hopefully for the next four years. I pray that bunch don't get in. I'm telling you what, that other bunch, they're a bunch of wackos, man. You won't be allowed to have a gun, I guarantee you that. And you might not even be able to go to church. I don't know what they're going to do. They might kill you. They've been killing people right and left anyways, burning the cities down and everything else. It's a mess. Christ is changeless, but in His holiness, this is part of the judgment of God. You know what this virus has done? It's inconvenienced us as a country. Not only has it killed almost 200,000 people but, and brought other t- turmoil and heartache to people, but it, it's inconvenienced the world. Let's stop and think about this. One of, the, one of the things that Americans don't like is being inconvenienced. It doesn't have to be a real tragic bolt of lightning down upon your head, but just being inconvenienced. Just having to come to church and have to sit a few feet apart. And some people with a mask and some people don't have a mask. I mean, just the part of the... You go to a restaurant, you've got to sit 10 feet away from each other. Just all these different things. Kids back to school. All these different things that are going on. Little kids having to wear masks. All this... Part of the judgment of God upon a nation that has spit in God's face for 50, 60 years now. Christ is changeless in His holiness. What, what, I don't know. People say, you know, that it wasn't God. God allowed this plague. I mean, if He didn't send it, He allowed it. Now, what, what else could God use to get the whole world's attention? Stop and think about it. If you hear about a tornado and a hurricane and all these uh, horrific things happening in other parts of the country, you don't think three seconds about it. Because that's in Japan. That's in Thailand. That's over in wherever, New Guinea or wherever it's at. You don't care about it, really. Let's be honest about it. You don't really care about it. But when it happens to you and I, 
And everybody's thinking, am I going to get this? I mean, when it first came out in March and April there, everybody's thinking, am I going to get it? Am I going to die? Because the news media made everybody think that if you go outside without a mask on for five seconds, you're going to fall over dead. And so what's happened is, is that it scared the devil out of a lot of people. I wonder how many people have actually gotten saved through this. I don't know, throughout the world. I wonder how many people have started thinking about their eternal destination. Maybe Christians that were backslid started getting back in church and started serving God. I don't know. But Christ is changeless in His holiness. Jesus Christ knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He, God, hath made Him, Jesus, for He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He knew no sin. He did no sin. 1 Peter 2.22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. <clears throat> Jesus Christ had no sin in him. 1 John 3.5, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, sin, and in him is no sin. And he, had, he was without sin, Hebrews 4.15, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now you think about a being that walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. He knew no sin, did no sin, had no sin, and was without sin. Just the very fact of getting around a person like that would put you under conviction. We're talking about a man who never said anything wrong. He never did anything wrong. What was sin 100 years ago is still sin today. All this alcohol and drugs and cursing and fornicating and adultery and homosexuality, lesbianism, all this stuff. Pornography, all these things in America today. Folks, this is what's killing our country. And if you bring it up, you're, you're accused of being a hate monger. But that's the problem. Not praying, not witnessing. Not giving tithes and offerings to your local church. Not reading your Bible like you ought to. Not coming to church when you're able. When you're able to be here. All these things. Laziness, stubbornness, pride, rebellion, selfishness. These were all sins a hundred years ago. They're still sin today. Christ is changeless in His holiness. Paul Harvey tells how an Eskimo kills a wolf. He coats his knife blade with blood and lets it freeze. Then he adds another coat of blood and then another. As each coat freezes, he adds another smear of blood until the blade is hidden deep within a substantial thickness of frozen blood. Then he buries the knife blade up in the frozen tundra. The wolf catches the scent of fresh blood and springs to lick it. He licks it more and more feverishly until the blade is bare. Then he keeps on licking harder and harder. Because of the cold, he never notices the pain of the blade on his tongue. His craving for the taste of blood is so great that he does not realize his thirst is being satisfied by his own blood. He licks the blade till he bleeds to death, swallowing his own life. That's what sin does. Young people especially, that's what sin does. It'll take you further than you want to go. 
it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. You're, you are never better off by sinning. Sin never leaves a man or a woman any better off. In other words, you're never, you're never advancing or progressing in the things of God by sinning. It always hurts you. Stay away from it. Let me tell you something. You're not missing anything. All you're missing is a bunch of heartache. Christ is changeless in His holiness. Thirdly, Christ is changeless in His love. His love. Jeremiah 31, 3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. You know how God drew me? He drew me by His love. You know what put me under conviction so bad before I got saved? Is how great God was toward me and how rotten I was toward Him. Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Romans 2 verse 4. Well, I want to thank God for His love and His goodness. Amen. Among the first glimpses we get of our God is that of a seeker. A seeker. Adam, where art thou? Genesis 3 9. In commenting upon this question uh, to his Bible class, a teacher said, You can never be a real preacher if you read it as though God were a policeman. Adam, where art thou? Read it as though God were a broken-hearted father looking for a lost child. Amen? Christ is changeless in His love. Dr. M. R. DeHaan said, whoever invented the word chicken-hearted didn't know his chickens. He said, I spring to the defense of the grossly maligned fowls, for a chicken is just the opposite. DeHaan said, I have never seen a greater demonstration of courage, love, fearlessness, and loyalty than I have seen displayed by a chicken in the time of danger. A hen will sit immovably through the most violent gale of wind and rain, her chicks gathered safely beneath her that they might be protected from the storm without. Perhaps now we can understand better why Jesus compared his own love to that of a hen. In Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Ye would not. Christ is changeless in his love. I want to thank him for his love. Amen. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. I mean, he, there was no resistance on Jesus Christ's part. <clears throat> you know, back then, those, uh, the, the criminals that got cr- crucified, no doubt they fought to the bitter end. They fought them Roman soldiers. Uh, they had to fight with them to get them, to get them on the cross because they didn't want to die. That, I don't believe that was true with our Savior. Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life. 
He said, he said, I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. In John 10, 17 and 18. He walked over there and laid down on the cross of Calvary. Voluntarily. He wants you and I to voluntarily receive him. Amen. If you're saved, he wants you to voluntarily serve him. Nobody's ever had to twist my arm to come to church. I know there's been things going on the last few months with the virus and all that and things. But I'm talking about before this virus and when this virus is over. Nobody, nobody's, I mean, if you're sick, that's one thing. You got other things going, you know, you got some, you know, things. But nobody's ever had to. Brother Homer Smith used to say, if we get him in with a hot dog, the church down the street will get him in with a hamburger. Nobody's ever had to get me, play a little game with me to get me to come to church. I, I go to church because I love Jesus. He voluntarily laid down his life for me. I witness and pray and try to do the things of God because I love the Lord. The love of Christ constraineth us, Paul said. 2 Corinthians 5.14. You know what that means? He said the, the love that Christ manifested on the cross of Calvary constrains me to serve Him. The love of Christ constraineth us. We love Him because He first loved us. 1 John 4.19 for God so loved the world. I mean, he's got a world vision. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. <clears throat> when I first come to this church that I'm pastoring, I've been there nine years, they were supporting three missionaries, $25 a month. And uh, I said, God, that ain't getting it, man. That ain't getting it. But I didn't know what to do. It's hard sometimes to get folks to give above their tithe, especially for missions. They just, you know, if they don't see it, if they're not in these countries and they don't see what's going on, they, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So I said, God, it really burdened me for several years, three or four or five years there. And I said, God, I said, I don't, I want to support more missionaries. I want to take on more missionaries because I know you so love the world. I'm talking about Christ is changeless in his love. And I said, God, you know, so I went to a particular church and I asked this pastor, I said, what do you do for missions? He said, well, and of course, this church is, he's been there for 33 years pastoring. 34 years, the pastor has. And I said, uh, what do you do? And he said, uh, he said, well, Brother Kogel, he said, last year, and not, not all churches can do this. This is what they do. They're financially able to do it. He said, last year we gave about 49% of our total income to missions. Almost half. I said, huh? He said, yeah. I said, how do you do that? He said, we, just, we, get, we start out with a certain percentage and so forth. So I went, I got praying about it. I went back to the church and I said, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start out with 10% of our total monthly income as a church. Whatever our total monthly income is as a church, we're going to take 10% of it and put it in the missions fund. 
We started doing that. We started taking on missionaries right and left. I was shouting and running the aisles. Praising God. We got more money in the missions account than we got in the general account. And uh, we're just take, we've been taking on missionaries right and left. We take them on 50 bucks a month. I'm, I'm trying to get that up to $75 a month eventually. But we got 22 missionaries. Plus the church gives like $800 a month in radio. We want to get the gospel out. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Number four, Christ is changeless in his power. Matthew 28, 18, he said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Psalm 62, 11, Power belongeth unto God. Luke 9, 43, And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. 2 Chronicles 25, 8, God hath power to help. Well, I'm glad God has power to help. Amen, he's our helper. Matthew 9, 6, The Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. We don't need another man to forgive our sins. We got Jesus Christ, amen. There's an interesting story which has come down from medieval times. The great scholar Thomas Aquinas came to the city of Rome to pay his respects to the one who was then Pope. This is many years ago, of course. In the course of his visit... The Pope proudly showed him all the wonders of the papal palace and took him to his treasury and showed him chest of silver and gold received from every part of the world. With something of a smile on his face, he said, You see, Thomas, we cannot say with Peter, Silver and gold have I none. Looking the Pope straight in the eyes, Thomas Aquinas fearlessly replied and said, No, and neither can we say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk, amen! No power! Got a lot of money, but no power! No power of God. Riches had come, but power had gone. Peter and the apostles had poverty, but they had power. That's what we need. The touch of God. Call it whatever you want. The anointing, filling with the Spirit. The touch of God. The power of God. That's what we need. Be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18. Now there's no magical formula. The Bible doesn't say that if you do this, 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 this equals fill the Spirit. Filling of the Spirit is just a daily walk with God. There's no magical thing about it. If, if the Bible says that we're to be filled with the Spirit then that means we're, we can be filled with the Spirit. Amen. I mean, it's not an impossibility. A man said some time ago, I visited one of our great hydroelectric plants. The guide took me out on the mile-long dam. It seemed good to get away from the sound of the high dynamos 
as we stood there, I noticed a lot of water going over the dam, and I said to the guide, what percent of the power from this river do you actually transform into electricity? And how much goes over the dam and is lost? He shook his head and he said, we don't use even one hundredth part of it. man said, I was stunned. But then I asked myself, he said, how much of the power of God do I transform into usefulness and how much is unused and lost? The last thing Jesus Christ said to his apostles, disciples. Now think about it. He could say a lot of things. I mean, a person on their deathbed, a family's called in. I mean, the words of that person's usually, I mean, they mean something. Now, he wasn't dying. Christ wasn't dying. But he's getting ready to ascend up into heaven. You know what he said the last thing in Acts 1.8? But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall talk in tongues and roll around on the floor and get slain in the Spirit. Is that what he said? That's probably in some of the versions. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me. What's the power for? To witness. Witnesses unto me both. The key word in that verse usually is both. Here and abroad. Both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. He's coming back. This same Jesus. But he said, you'll receive power. That's what we need power of God in our lives power of God comes through clean living separation just the old time saints not just preachers old time saints had a touch of God the power of God on their lives Dr. Ruckman said that I heard him say one time he went to Bob Jones University back in 1949 to 55. He said, when Dr. Bob Jones Sr. walked into the room, he said, I'm not trying to sound spooky, but he said, you could feel and see God all over the man. Back in the early 80s, I went to a camp meeting down in Myrtle, Mississippi, and uh, Percy Ray, Dr. Green said back in 83 that Dr. Green preached hard against sin Lansing, Michigan preached against everything he was pastor of that church for 60 years up there in Lansing he's 92 years old now he's in a wheelchair he said, he said say what you want this was back in 83 he said say what you want Percy Ray is the most spiritual man in America well I went to Percy Ray's camp meeting in 81 or 82 I, you can call me a wacko weirdo whatever you want to call me but I was standing there registering me and a couple other preachers in the camp meeting. And uh, Percy Ray walked by. He had a 
cowboy hat on, cowboy boots. He never married. Pastor of church and had that camp meeting for years in Myrtle, Mississippi, big old tabernacle. He had some of them Southern Baptist preachers in there, man, back in the early 80s, Ronnie Simpson, Laverne Butler out of Louisville. Uh, uh, some of those guys preached the bark off a tree, man. But he, he, walked, he walked by me. Now, I, you can call me crazy, whatever you want to call me. I, I could feel God when that man walked by me. It's like, whew, whew. Brother Estep says when the Holy Spirit comes into a service, it comes in as waves. There's no pumping it up. There's no priming it up. There's no personality it up. There's no programming it up. It just happens. I was at Brother Estep's camp meeting, well, many times, but a couple different times when the Holy Ghost really came in that place. I'm talking about the power of God. Brother Estep just stood here. He stood here uh, silent. Uh, Rex Harrison just got up and sang a bunch of songs. But, but Don Green or Alan Jones or somebody just got up and preached against everything that moved. And if it didn't move, he kicked it. So it moved, and then he preached against it. I mean, he preached against everything. I mean, just, I, mean there was, I don't think there was a sin left in the Bible. And he got done for an hour and a half preaching, and then Rex Harrison got up on the piano and just one song to another, just singing. And the power of God and the Spirit of God come in that place. And I wear contact lenses sometimes and glasses sometimes. And I had my contact lenses in and I looked at a couple other preachers at them. I go, I said, brother, it is getting foggy in here. You say, Kogel, you're a nut. You're a charismatic. No, I'm not. It got foggy in there, brother. People were calling to each other, apologizing. They were going to do a building program. And people were mad at each other about different things. You know how the devil gets work and stuff. And uh, people mad. People's marriages were on the people's marriages were on the uh, break up. And and uh, people were mad at each other. People were mad at Brother Eastep, the pastor, and this and that. People were hugging and kissing and slobbering on each other and everything else. People got right with God. People got saved. It lasted about 40, 45 minutes. And then it just subsided. Nobody stopped it except God. I thought... No wonder why we got to get a new glorified body. I felt like I was melting. Nobody talked in tongues. Nobody rolled around on the floor and got slain in the spirit. I'm telling you what, the power of God come in there. You say, when was that? In the 80s. You shall receive power. That's what we need. Power of God in our families, our churches, our marriages, our children, our grandchildren. Stinking, rotten, low down devil. I hate the devil, what he's doing to a lot of people today. I got saved in 77. Started preaching eight months later in February of 78. I watched the low-down, stinking, rotten devil destroy homes, marriages, teenagers' lives, churches. Stay with God. Stay close. 
draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. James 4, 8. Dr. Green said you can get just as close to God as you want to get. You can get just as close to God as you want to get. John probably was the closest. I mean, Peter was, and Paul obviously, but John and Jesus were, they were pretty close. You know, John is the one, that disciple whom Jesus loved is mentioned five times in the Gospel of John. It's John. That's who he's talking about. John is the one at the Last Supper in John 13. John is the one that laid his head on the bosom of Jesus Christ. When Christ said, one of you shall betray me, and the different ones were asking, Lord, is it I, is it I, is it I? You know what John said? Lord, who is it? John knew it wasn't him. He's a type of the church. Woo! Hallelujah! The church shouldn't betray Christ. But he leaned over and had his head on the bosom of Jesus Christ, the heartbeat of God. That's where the church ought to be. That's where the church ought to be. Power of God. I, mean, I could go all, let me go to this next one here. Number five. Christ is changeless in his promises. Amen. Boy, sometimes that's all you got to stand on is the promises of God. 1 Kings 8.56 There hath not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. 2 Peter 1.4 Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. When you get saved, you're a partaker of the divine nature of God. You have God in you. That's why you feel bad when you say things or do things wrong. Before I got saved, I didn't care. Before I got born again, I didn't care what I said or did. I didn't care if I hurt somebody's feelings, offended them. Whatever. But after you got Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27... That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, Ephesians 3.17. Once you get Jesus Christ inside of your body, you're a partaker of the divine nature of God. You have God's nature in you. You might sin, but you can never enjoy it. A Christian can never enjoy sin again. Sorry, you can try all you want, but you can't enjoy it. There's promises of salvation, security, comfort, provision, second coming, about the rapture there, tribulation, millennium. You know, there's hundreds of verses in the Bible about the tribulation and millennium in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, hundreds of verses that are future from right now. There's just a few verses about the rapture. Now, we're waiting for the rapture. That's what we're waiting on. Praise God. Hallelujah. We can run the aisles. Hallelujah. But technically, there's just a few verses about the rapture. There's hundreds and hundreds on the second advent coming of Christ to this earth. 
in the millennium. There's nine, the last nine chapters in Ezekiel 40 to 48, nine chapters including chapter 40, nine chapters on the millennial temple. Vance Habner said there's approximately 8,810 promises in the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, he said there's 7,706 promises. In the New Testament, there's 1,104 wonderful promises. He said, Deuteron- I never really checked it to see if it's true, but he said Deuteronomy 28 has 133 promises in it, which is more than any other chapter in the Bible. Habner says we're sitting on the promises when we ought to be standing on the promises of God. Amen. Number six. Christ is changeless in his gospel invitation. His gospel invitation is extended by the Holy Spirit. Revelation twenty two seventeen, and the Spirit and the bride say, come. I told you I got saved in 77. Long story short, a man witnessed me. I worked at Rexall Drugs Warehouse on the west side of Columbus, Ohio. Oh, Al Hamby, he's been in heaven for 24 years now. He's about 25 years older than me. And uh, he came in there. He witnessed us. He told me, he said, son, you'll split hell wide open. I said, "Woo! I'll be down there partying with all my friends. He said, you must have been a nut. Yeah, some people think I still am. Amen. But he said, you won't be partying. You'll be burning like a torch, son. I said, huh? He said, you'll be burning in hell. He'd invite me to church for a year, year and a couple, three months. He said, why don't you come to church? I said, no, I'm going out partying tonight, man. And I tell him what I'm going to do. His face turned blood red. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to revival service tonight, son. He said, I'm going to get up and request prayer for a young man that I work with named Steve Kogel. That's what he'd do. He said, pray that that young man is miserable. He told me that. I said, you're going to pray I'll be miserable? I didn't know what to say. I said, you're, you're a Christian. You're not supposed to pray that. You know, I didn't know what to say. He said, yeah, and brother, I went out, and I'm going to tell you what, I was miserable. I couldn't enjoy nothing. When the Holy Ghost of God is dealing with your heart, you might as well just give in. Why be miserable? Why live in misery? You know the Holy Ghost dealing with your heart, you know what it's like? It's like one of them little dogs nipping at your pant leg. What are them little dogs called that nip at you? Chihuahua. I've been out soul winning, visitation. We went out Thursday, we got there on Thursday nights, knocking on doors and stuff. And we went out here a couple, three weeks ago there, and one of the most stinking dogs started chasing me like that. It started going, I went, get out of here, man. That's what it's like when the Holy Ghost starts dealing with your heart about stuff. Nipping at your heels. You might as well just give in. Amen. I'm glad I gave in. So he, he, he said, you, uh, make a long story short. So I went to church with him finally after over a year, 14, 15 months. I, went to church with, I never got saved in the church house. I went to his house afterward. His wife worked second shift at General Motors up there. And uh, his kids were all raised out of the house. And on Thursday night, June 16, 1977, I got ready to leave. I just bought a new 76 Pontiac Trans Am. Ordered it from General Motors. Thought I was the king of the road, buddy. And I had to go 270 the outer belt to get the far north end of Columbus. And I got ready to leave his house after he witnessed me for two hours after the church service. We went to his house. And I got ready to leave. And I'm going to tell you what, I was 20 years old. I had hair down to here. My heart felt like it was going to come out of the socket. 
old-fashioned Holy Ghost conviction, which you don't see much of today. You see people laughing at sin, and fools make a mock at sin, Proverbs 14, 9. I got ready to leave. I put my hand on the doorknob. I looked at him. I had tears in my eyes. I thought, what am I crying about? I never cried in my life. He said, son, you need to get saved. You were running from God too long. I got on my knees and repented of my sins and received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. He said, now, he said, let me show you some eternal security verses. He said, because you ain't going to be out here a week. There's going to be some of these Christians trying to show you you can lose, still go to hell and lose your salvation. So he showed me that. And then I went home. I got home about 1230 in the morning. I had to go to work the next morning, Friday morning. I got in there and people already heard. Kogel got religion. I walked in there smiling from ear to ear. They looked at me like. I'm going to tell you what, all that junk I gave before I got saved, God kept me in that reprobate place for two more years. I had to hear all their filthy, dirty jokes and all their filthy talk. And You know, you reap what you sow. I got saved. Christ has changed us in his gospel invitation. His gospel invitation is to all. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Revelation twenty two seventeen. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans ten thirteen. You know, a person can wait too long and reject the gospel invitation because the Bible says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27, 1. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. I read this. This is a true story. 58 years ago, one night in 1962, in a hotel in Seattle, Washington, Billy Graham was sound asleep. Suddenly he awoke with what he later described as a burden to pray for Marilyn Monroe, the movie actress back then. When the burden continued the next day, one of Graham's associates tried to reach the actress through one of her agents. The agent offered no hope for a meeting immediately. Not now, maybe a couple of weeks from now, he said. Two weeks later, Marilyn Monroe's suicide shocked the world. Two weeks was too late. That's why it says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Last of all, number seven, I want to say this. Christ is changeless in his ability to save. Think about his ability to save your soul from hell. Hebrews 7.25, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. Uttermost. That means he does a complete job. It's not a thing where he wasn't hanging on the cross and he didn't say, I did my part, now you do your part. He said in John 19.30, it is finished. To the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. 1 Samuel 14.6, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. He saved Zacchaeus, the Samaritan woman. 
Nicodemus, save the Apostle Paul. He can save anybody, anywhere. Philippian jailer in jail. Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Samaritan woman out by a well. It don't matter. I got saved in the man's house there when I was talking about a few minutes ago. I didn't get saved in a church. I got man, saved in a man's living room in a hilliard outside of Columbus. Anybody, anywhere, anytime, any age, if they're the age of accountability, they understand, so before you understand that. Uh, any number of people. You realize 10 million people could call on the name of the Lord at the same time and he could save every one of them? You and I have a you, you and I have a problem. You ever been talking to like I'm not trying to I hope I don't offend nobody, but you ever talked like maybe to a couple, a man and wife, or maybe a couple guys or a couple women, and you're talking to two or three women, and they're all talking to you at the same time. At the same time he's talking, she's talking, another person's talking, you're going. You and I can't even talk to more than one person at the same time. God can hear the cries of hundreds and thousands and millions of people at the same time. Whether for salvation or praying, you're praying to Him or crying out to Him or whatever. What a God. Why don't people want to serve Him? I don't understand it. I'll close with this. In 1752, George Whitfield wrote to Benjamin Franklin. He said, as I find you growing more and more famous in the world of letters, I recommend to your unprejudiced study the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important study, and if mastered, will abundantly repay you. I bid you, dear friend, remember that he before whose bar we must both soon appear has solemnly declared that without it, we shall in no wise see his kingdom. George Whitfield wrote to Benjamin Franklin. Not far from New York, there's a cemetery where there's a grave which has inscribed upon its headstone just one word, forgiven. There's no name, no date of birth or death. The stone is unbellished by the sculptor's art. There's no epitaph, no eulogy, just that one word, forgiven. But that is the greatest thing that can be said of any human being or written upon their grave. Forgiven! Have you been forgiven? Are you born again? Let's stand if you would. Preacher, come ahead.